Hey everyone. I like to think this book was written by two people, one of them insane, because some chapters give great tips on creativity, and other chapters say that if you have cancer, it's because you didn't follow your dreams. <laughs> the book is The War of Art by Gollum and Smeagol. <laughs> I'm Kellett Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and I now hesitate to call myself an artist because of how easy it is to make fun of this guy who uses the word <laughs> art a lot, but he also wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance. <laughs> Keep my name out your mouth. And I'm David Vance. <laughs> I read this book seven years ago and didn't think anything was weird about it. So what was going on with me? The War of Art is about why you should create every single day. It's also about why Hitler did what he did because he was scared to paint. <laughs> <laughs> and this is The Book Pile. Seth Adam Smith says, which is obviously just another one of the many fake names we see in our reviews. As amazing as this podcast is, I hesitated giving it a five-star review because it is missing one obvious thing. When the intro music is wrapping up and the last six notes are played, they don't sing. And this is The Book Pile. <laughs> Imagine listening to Churchill give a speech and then being like, but how are his vocal runs? <laughs> we just recently went to uh, Cape Canaveral, uh, speaking of JFK, and they replay his speech in all these different uh, areas of the tour. Part of President Kennedy's speech when he's saying we choose to go to the moon, it seems like he just forgot it or he wrote it like two minutes ahead of time, like he had forgotten he had a big space speech that day. <laughs> because he says verbatim, we choose to go to the moon and the other things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And it's like, and the other things? Was there like, did he have a filler note in there of like, come up with other things? He sounds like a man confessing to adultery in the vaguest terms possible. <laughs> Which I'm sure is something he also did. I apologize for the other things. <laughs> All right, if you want to see me live, I'm going to be in Elk Grove, California, September 16th, and Denver, Colorado at Comedy Works South, September 23rd and 24th. Go to kellenerskin.com for tickets. I'm trying to have more energy. <laughs> I know you're doing stand-up, but wouldn't it be great if Elk Grove is an arena where you fight an elk? <laughs> All right, after this week's book, The War of Art, next week's book is The Art of War. And the week after that, surprise announcement, we are going to be covering the book Good Night Moon with none other than returning guest Chad Daniels. Chad, of course, was on our highly downloaded Old Man in the Sea episode. Chad is one of the best working stand-up comics today and my personal favorite. So come back and check it out on September 19th. Also, just stay here and listen to this episode. All right, and without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from The War of Art. All right, lesson one. Treat it like a job, a.k.a. don't wait for the muse. He has a great quote from Somerset Mon. I write only when inspiration strikes. Fortunately, it strikes every morning at nine o'clock sharp. <laughs> I think sometimes with creativity, we think we have to be in the right mood, like be inspired. Imagine if Serena Williams said, oh, I only hit a backhand when I'm inspired. <laughs> Instead, she hit a ton of backhands every day, 
and now she has enough trophies to make a car. <laughs> so the biggest thing I got from this book was treat your creativity like a job. So what's a job like? You do it every day. You do it no matter what. You work on your technique. And I find I get so much more done by writing daily than I do if I just wait for a Saturday where I feel artistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I have some stuff to say about this in my next point, but I do find it interesting how he almost bounces back and forth uh, between contrary ideas because he is all about consistent work. But then at the same time, he literally prays to the Greek muses. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't it seem like this author is like, don't you know at least one person in your life where it's someone who has had a hard life for a long time, but then at some point they had an epiphany or two and turned everything around, but then they spread whatever that personal lesson was for them to everyone else. And it's <laughs> like, no, I'm doing okay, man, but I'm, I'm glad this means something to you. <laughs> Like the friend who thinks everyone should do AA. <laughs> <laughs> I had a church leader growing up who every Sunday when he started the meeting, he would share these weird sort of proverbs that he had come up with. Like he would read directly from his journal. <laughs> and you could tell that it meant something to him. And my mom told us, like, I grew up with this guy. He dealt with a lot. <laughs> but then he turned around, and now the rest of us have to suffer because of it. <laughs> All right, lesson two. Identify what's useful for you and laugh off the rest. This is what I have to do when I read books like The Alchemist or The Old Testament. <laughs> so here's a great example of what this book sounds like. Uh, at one point, he's itemizing his work day for us. Quote, I've got my coffee now. I put my work boots on and stitch up the lucky laces that my niece Meredith gave me. I head to the office, crank up the computer. My lucky hooded sweatshirt is draped over the chair. I put on my lucky Largo name tag that came from a dream I once had. On my thesaurus is a lucky cannon that my friend gave me from Cuba. I point it toward my chair so it can fire inspiration into me. He's serious. <laughs> I repeat the invocation of the muse from Homer's Odyssey. It's about 1030 now. I sit down and plunge in. When I start making typos, that's when I I know I'm getting tired. I've hit the point of diminishing returns, usually after about four hours. How many pages have I produced? I don't care. Are they any good? I don't even think about it. All that matters is that I put in my time and I hit it with all I've got. The first time I read all that, I just got stuck at the beginning thinking, wait, you put on boots to write? <laughs> I just think this whole paragraph is a perfect microcosm of this book because for me, the actual practical applications I got from it are that he has a ritual, he puts in the time every day, and he's mm -hmm. not too precious about the work, but he is precious about the time. But all of that is surrounded with a hilarious amount of weird detail and an odd <laughs> amount of evidence that for a guy who believes in hard work, he also believes in lucky charms. <laughs> also, he cranks up his computer. I'm not sure what that means. I guess he has a laptop powered by a lawnmower engine. <laughs> he uses his boots so he can run the hamster wheel. <laughs> 
But slogging through this book, you do find these gems. And here I was like, finally, you know, an example of work. He just has a consistent routine. The book Atomic Habits can tell you that, but with science to back it up and not just like Tony Robbins frat bro Instagram wisdom. Uh It's like, oh, cool, man. You battled your demons and wrote a 74-page book. And because of all like the unsighted, unsourced sort of uh, theories that he presents as facts, the times when the book really stuck for me was when he was talking about the writing process, because mm-hmm. he has obviously he sold books and movies successfully. So I felt like those were fair takeaways. But everything else about how like, you know, angels were whispering to him what to add to Total Recall. <laughs> I wasn't as on board. <laughs> Did he write Total Recall? He's credited on it. He uh, he apparently was hired for Punch Up. Oh. Which, looking at the success of his other movies, he may have made it worse. <laughs> <laughs> and for anyone still upset at me about my Bible comment, do you remember that one part when a group of boys teases the prophet Elijah because he's bald, and then he commands bears to maul 40 of them? <laughs> I totally get it. I hate getting made fun of for being bald. I'm just not sure what the life lesson is. Yeah, if you if you had the power to command bears after bald jokes, I don't know that you wouldn't use it. <laughs> I don't think you would, but I don't know that. <laughs> All right, lesson three. Is he serious? <laughs> the book is half useful and half a little bonkers. Like Kellen said, reading this book is probably what it's like to go into the Old Testament with no context. Because one second you're like, thou shalt not kill. That makes sense. And the next you're like, they did what with their dad? (laughs) Kellen, I'm going to read some quotes and you tell me if you think he's serious or not. If tomorrow morning, by some stroke of magic, every soul woke up with the power to take the first step toward pursuing his or her dreams, every shrink in the directory would be out of business. Prisons would stand empty. The alcohol and tobacco industries would collapse, not to mention pharmaceutical companies, hospitals, and the medical profession from top to bottom. Domestic abuse would become extinct, as would addiction, obesity, migraine headaches, road rage, and dandruff. (laughs) Kellen, you do comedy. You know how your migraines just stopped? (laughs) (laughs) And remember how no comedian is depressed or does drugs? (laughs) (laughs) Especially the successful ones. (laughs) All of them are happy. Do you think he's being serious? I honestly still don't know. I mean, how, what about the guy whose dream it is to run a cigarette empire? <laughs> I thought he was kind of doing a bit, but throughout the book, he really seems to believe that being sick is a choice. <laughs> <laughs> he says, people aren't sick, they're self-dramatizing. My dad's a diabetes doctor. He's going to be so thrilled to find out people are faking their blood sugars for attention. (laughs) (laughs) I've met other people who say similar things, and I challenge anyone to find someone who has given similar advice who is not just genetically healthy. (laughs) (laughs) There's a part that comes later where he straight up basically says, Maybe people are getting cancer because they're not following their dreams. And if they follow their dreams, the cancer will go away. (laughs) Another quote. You know, Hitler wanted to be an artist. Ever see one of his paintings? Neither have I. Call it overstatement, but I'll say it anyway. It was easier for Hitler to start World War II than it was for him to face a blank square of canvas. (laughs) Oh, my God. 
He knows Hitler finished paintings, right? (laughs) (laughs) Also, earlier in the book, he says not to take your creative work too seriously. Then later he says, if you don't do your creative work, you shame the angels who watch over you and you spite the Almighty who created you and only you with your unique gifts. (laughs) It's like, whoa, okay, I'll budget some time for my mime practice. (laughs) I just want to congratulate all of the painters out there for doing the hard thing. (laughs) And not becoming a murderous dictator. All right. Lesson four, learn how to be miserable. And this is what I say to every newborn. No, but (laughs) obvious Will Smith jokes aside, if I had a billion dollars, I would use a lot of it to pay him to walk into random hospital nurseries and say, welcome to earth. (laughs) Can I tell you a quick Will Smith story? Yeah. My girlfriend and I, one day we're playing pickleball. We came back, started watching the Oscars, and we see Will Smith give this speech about protecting your family, and sometimes it makes you look a little crazy. And we're like, huh, (laughs) that's interesting. (laughs) And then hours later, we found out about the slap. (laughs) And it's funny how you can be missing a huge piece of context and have no idea you're missing it. (laughs) So Pressfield, an ex-Marine himself, writes, quote, There's a myth that Marine training turns baby face recruits into bloodthirsty killers. Trust me, the Marine Corps isn't that efficient. What it does teach, however, is a lot more useful, how to be miserable. He says, the artist or entrepreneur committing himself to his calling has volunteered for hell, whether he knows it or not. He will be dining for the duration on a diet of isolation, rejection, self-doubt, despair, ridicule, contempt, and humiliation. And I read that and I was like, come on, man, you forgot hopelessness. (laughs) But he continues, the artist needs to be like that Marine. He has to know how to be miserable. I know what he's getting at. It's in a highly dramatic way. But it's puncturing the romantic myth that an artist stands at their easel overlooking a sunlit lake and just churns out hit after hit. Mm -hmm. I mean, Thomas Kincaid did that, but I also think he had a pact with Satan. But it's pretty obvious. In reality, creating is just a lot of tedious work, right? Most of which is underappreciated if noticed at all. And if it isn't literally hell, it's at least... A lot of just plain boring sitting around and thinking, which I guess feels more and more like hell when distractions are so readily available to us. Dave, remember when TikTok was only on once a week and hosted by Bob Saget? I don't get that reference, but I get what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's an America's Funniest Home Videos uh, reference for anyone four years older than Dave. Like my uh, my bike lock joke, which has made me a, a good amount of money at this point. I wrote it when I was at Home Depot in the middle of a day of monotonous plumbing labor. And if you don't think that plumbing can be hell, you've never done any plumbing. <laughs> I don't think it can't be hell. <laughs> I didn't hear that and think the exciting world of plumbing. <laughs> well, you know, you hear things. <laughs> The only people out there who thought that were the adult film addicts. (laughs) (laughs) All right, random facts. The title of this book makes me want to see if I can make a million dollars by writing something called Prejudice and Pride. (laughs) 
the Monte Cristo of Count. Dick Moby. <laughs> that is a scarier sounding whale. <laughs> it's a sperm whale. So the subtitle of this book is Break Through the Blocks and Win Your Inner Creative Battles. But Dave, shouldn't it be Break Through the Blocks and Win My Inner Creative Battles? <laughs> He says in the book that when you start asking, what does the market want, rather than asking, what do I want to make? First of all, you're condescending to your audience. But second, he says, you're actually scared of them because you're afraid of showing them what you actually think and feel. And that was the type of lesson I thought you idiots might like. (laughs) I do like that. And I agree with that part. But then again, to me, it goes off the rails after that when he gets into the cliche sort of message of all of us are scared of what we're really capable of. I don't know how many times I've seen that in like motivational high school sports movies, but he literally says, we fear what we're capable of that will become monsters and monstrous It's just a weird way to put it. (laughs) Yeah, anytime a book says, you know what you're afraid of? Success. (laughs) I'm like, I have not met one person. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty consistent that people are afraid of like heights or drowning or becoming a failure. Uh huh. No one is ever like, I just, I worry that I'll become an industry titan. That's why I hate that moment in every superhero movie where the teenager wishes they didn't have powers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe there are some people who are genuinely afraid of success. But what I think it might be is just that idea that like if you can say a counterintuitive idea in a clever sounding way, people think you're a genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's this quote by F. Scott Fitzgerald. He says, The cleverly expressed opposite of any generally accepted idea is worth a fortune to somebody. (laughs) (laughs) So I could relate with Pressfield when he said that he tried dodging the draft, but he actually did end up joining the Marines. And he says, quote, Marines derive a perverse sense of satisfaction in having colder chow, worse equipment, and a higher casualty rate than any outfit of dog faces, swabbies, or flyboys, all of whom they despise. And of course, those are derogatory names for the Army, Navy, and Air Force. And I just, I absolutely support our military, even though I disagree with how certain administrations have occasionally misused them in the past maybe 50 years, but it's crazy to me how the separate branches of military hate each other. (laughs) That that bodes well for a war effort. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're a part of one and you don't, that's cute and good for you. But I've had more than one conversation with Marines and one member of the Air Force to know that a lot of these guys are hostile about thinking their branch is the best. And it goes beyond jokes and taunting. It's just weird to me that, like, for people who are supposedly all under the same flag, they act like they're on different teams. And to be fair to anyone currently enlisted who is hating me right now, yes, all of you could beat me up if that makes you feel better. The one thing that unites all of them, though, is their disrespect for the Coast Guard. (laughs) 
which would definitely be my first choice to join because I love <laughs> helicopters and the ocean and not being sent to Russia. <laughs> yeah, man, hanging out in the ocean in a country that has basically never been attacked. <laughs> Someone's got to keep the sand safe. <laughs> Make sure no one does a reverse Normandy. <laughs> I read a book that made the argument that maybe part of the reason why the U.S. values personal li liberty to such a high level is that we have such enormous geographic barriers that we're basically never attacked. Huh. So they point out Germany basically experienced war for centuries, and they are like very culturally rigid in comparison. Mm. But the U.S. has these two enormous oceans and then mountains to the north and south so it's like, yeah, you can wear your pants a little lower. <laughs> <laughs> the author doesn't know it, but he gave me my high school nickname. Because like Kellen said, he wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance. And when I was a sophomore, one day Eric Follett just started calling me Bagger. And then that was just my nickname for all of high school. <laughs> I still haven't read it or seen it. <laughs> and I found out later Bagger is black. So I don't know what the rules are there. <laughs> <laughs> Is that why you didn't graduate high school? <laughs> the embarrassing thing about not graduating is that I was in senior class government. So I was on stage shaking everyone's hand as they went by. <laughs> and then I just went backstage and didn't cross. <laughs> With every handshake, did you just say, must be nice? <laughs> No, yeah, no, I'm focusing on my, my music. <laughs> You're like, congrats on becoming part of the system. <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from the War of Art. One, treat it like a job, a.k.a. don't wait for the muse. Two, identify what's useful for you and laugh off the rest. Three, is he serious? Four, learn how to be miserable. And five... Don't forget your lucky slippers. And this is the book pile.